good morning and thanks for joining us on China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. This morning we are delighted to chat with Professor Ishwar Prasad about his new book, The Dollar Trap: How the U.S. Dollar Tightened Its Grip on Global Finance. Professor Prasad is the Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Ishwar, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me on. Countries like China have been frustrated that they have no place other than dollar assets to invest most of their reserves. But you make the argument in your new book that that is likely going to be the case for the foreseeable future, and that the global financial crisis has actually strengthened the dollar's prominence in global finance. Please tell us why. What the global financial crisis did was to substantially increase the demand for safe financial assets. That is, assets that are relatively liquid or easy to trade, and that are available in large quantities. Why is this? Because emerging markets want a lot more foreign exchange reserves to protect themselves from capital flow and currency volatility. Private investors want more safety in times of turmoil, and banks are being asked to hold more safe financial assets. Now, while the demand has increased, the supply has shrunk because the eurozone doesn't look quite so safe anymore, especially after the eurozone debt crisis. Countries like Japan and Switzerland are themselves accumulating reserves because they don't want their currencies to appreciate with capital flowing in. So that leaves the U.S. as the primary provider, and the U.S. has been issuing a lot of public debt. And the world seems to be willing to lap it up. <laughs> so even as U.S. public debt is ballooning and, in some ways, threatening U.S. fiscal solvency, other countries that save more and are far less profligate in comparison,、uh, and these countries include emerging economies that are not nearly as rich as the U.S., they're stuck. Uh, footing the bill, so to speak. Should we view this as some sort of grave injustice? It does seem like a remarkable paradox because the global financial crisis, which set off a lot of、uh, financial market turmoil, did have its origins in the United States. The U.S. has built up a very large amount of public debt since the crisis, and the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, has been issuing a lot of dollars, which in principle should reduce the value of those dollars and reduce the prominence of those dollars. But the funny thing is that every time there is turmoil anywhere in financial markets. Uh, in emerging markets, in the eurozone, or—and this is the great paradox—in the U.S. itself, money comes to the U.S. in search of a safe haven. Again, in international finance, everything is relative. It's not like the U.S. is especially strong, but the rest of the world looks even weaker. Yes, yes, and but do do you think that the, the policies that ha,、uh, that the United States、um, uh, Federal Reserve has adopted has made the situation even more, or made the situation more of a trap for the other countries? That with the easy money policy that the U.S. has instituted, has that made it more difficult for emerging markets that do want to sort of break free from the dollar to actually break free? Certainly, what the Fed has been doing has been creating complications for the emerging markets. So, when the Fed introduced quantitative easing, there was a sense that that made it easy for investors to borrow very cheaply in the U.S. and invest in emerging market countries. So, this caused、um, asset market bubbles, inflation, and other problems in the emerging markets. Not that the Fed's actions were the main determinant. But it certainly added some fuel to the fire in the emerging markets. And then, when the Fed announced that it was going to pull back its monetary easing, what is known as the taper, 
That led to capital flowing out of the emerging markets, and many of these currencies came under pressure. So from the point of view of emerging market economies, the Fed's actions are creating even more volatility in their capital flows, and they want more protection. And where do they go for that protection? Back to the U.S. <laughs> but aren't some of these emerging markets also contributing to the crisis on their own, right? So even bef- so, a number of them, uh, China, for instance, the U.S. has complained that China has been engaged in this uh, practice of manipulating its currency, keeping it artificially low. And do, do you think that that, in fact, has also contributed to the problem? Now, China has $3.8 trillion worth of foreign exchange reserves. That's um, about 40-45% of GDP. So it's hard to argue that China needs more protection. So in China's case, there does seem to be a more mercantilist motive that is keeping the currency from appreciating so that China's exports become more competitive. For other emerging markets like India, Brazil, even Russia, they don't have quite as much reserves. But for them... Accumulating reserves by intervening in foreign markets, isn't, foreign exchange markets, is in some ways a double blessing. Because on the one hand, when capital flows in, they avoid the complications associated with those inflows and prevent their currency from appreciating. Plus, they build up protection for the future. So from their point of view, it's in some sense a win-win game, except for the fact that they're getting very low rates of return on their U.S. dollar investments. And if the U.S. dollar eventually depreciates then these countries are going to get less in terms of their own currencies on the U.S. bond holdings. So it's not a great deal for them. But countries seem to be willing to pay a very <laughs> high price for protection. Uh, okay. We are speaking with Professor Eshwar Prasad of Cornell University and the Brookings Institution. Uh, so if there's currently no good alternative to the dollar, what measures have emerging, emerging economies taken to decrease their reliance on the dollar as a reserve currency? Now, the reality is that they have no other place to hide if they want to build up large stocks of foreign exchange reserves. Now, the emerging markets, uh, including China, are quite frustrated, of course. They've tried to put their heads together and perhaps create among the big emerging market economies, the so-called BRICS, the Big Five. Um, They've set up something called the Contingent Reserve Fund, which is that they could use um, each other's reserves at times of turmoil. In Asia, of course, you have the Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralization, the CMIM, which is supposed to give countries within that network protection using each other's reserves. But the problem in all of these cases is that it requires trust in each other. And while the emerging markets are all frustrated with the U.S., the odd thing is that they still trust the U.S. much more than they trust each other. And I think ultimately this is why the U.S. is in the position that it's in, because it's not just that the U.S. is a very large and powerful economy and has deep financial markets, but the democratic political institutions of the U.S., the um, independent judiciary, and the um, system of checks and balances in the U.S., in addition to public institutions like the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, that the world seems to trust those are all very important reasons why the U.S. will continue to dominate as a safe haven. Mm-hmm. China obviously is very interested in the internationalization of the renminbi. Could China emerge in the near future as a viable uh, reserve currency or even as an alternative to the dollar? The renminbi is certainly on its way to becoming a reserve currency. Now, China will need to have a more open capital account, a more flexible exchange rate, and much deeper and broader financial markets so that 
foreign investors will have easy access to renminbi denominated assets all of these are going to take a long time but i think china is on the right track and over the next uh, one to two decades i do see the renminbi becoming a viable and perhaps even a significant reserve currency but that still leaves open the question about whether the renminbi will ever be considered a safe haven and that i think is going to require much more than economic and financial market reforms it will require much more fundamental changes in the institutional and political structure in china to make the political system more open and transparent and it will require an independent judiciary and as of now economic and uh, financial market reforms do seem to be on the cards but i don't see a significant prospect of political legal or broader institutional reforms that will be necessary for the renminbi to be seen as a safe haven currency and that's where i think it will erode but not really challenge the dollar's dominance now you mentioned a number of things earlier that china would need to do to get its currency to become a viable reserve currency so uh, financial market development for instance i think you mentioned flexible exchange rate capital account liberalization should china tackle all these things all sort of at the same time or should it uh, sort of do one before the other now the traditional sequence would be to allow for a more flexible exchange rate before opening up the capital account and also improving financial market depth and also regulation of the financial markets before liberalizing capital inflows and outflows but china as with many other things has been working on its own playbook trying to move very gradually and incrementally in each of these areas and they sort of feed off each other so for instance china has opened up the capital account in a way that improves domestic financial markets allowing foreign investors to come in not just with their money but also with their expertise and their corporate governance practices likewise china's opening up the capital account in terms of allowing outflows by households by corporates by institutional investors and the idea there is to give chinese residents an opportunity to diversify their savings and also to get uh, some competition for the domestic financial system china is i think moving at a reasonable pace in all of these dimensions and again it's doing it in its own way but so far at least uh, the chinese policy makers heart seem to be in the right place and they are progressing are there uh, tipping point scenarios that you can envision where the value of the dollar would come tumbling down One thing that the financial crisis has taught us is that financial markets can blindside us either with shocks that we did not anticipate or with shocks that are much larger than uh, than we might have anticipated. And in my book I do go through various tipping point scenarios. China or perhaps Russia now might decide that even if it's going to cost them, it's worth hurting the US bond markets by dumping some of their treasuries. US bond investors themselves might start worrying about whether the Fed can pull back its quantitative easing without setting off inflation now the interesting thing is in each of these tipping point scenarios what would happen is you would have turmoil in us bond markets and us government bond markets are considered the safest in the world so if you have turmoil there you would quickly have turmoil in other us financial markets and if that happened you would have turmoil in global financial markets and what happens when you want turmoil all investors want safety and where do you go when you want safety back to the us <laughs> even if it is likely that you will have financial turmoil ultimately all these roads lead back to the us which is what makes this equilibrium where the dollar is so dominant seemingly very fragile but ultimately 
it is sort of stable and self-reinforcing because it is now in everyone's interest to maintain the value of the dollar because foreign investors including foreign central banks hold about 5.7 trillion dollars worth of us treasury securities alone not to mention trillions of dollars worth of other us dollar denominated assets so if the dollar were to plunge in value the rest of the world in some sense would be hurt as badly if not more than the us Well, on that very optimistic note, uh, we want to thank Professor Eshwar Prasad for joining us today. Uh, uh, That was Professor Eshwar Prasad of Cornell University and the Brookings Institution. His new book is The Dollar Trap, How the U.S. Tightened Its Grip on Global Finance. Eshwar, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning and welcome back to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. We are pleased to have with us Eric Prince, chairman of DVN Holdings and author of Civilian Warriors, The Inside Story of Blackwater and the Unsung Heroes of the War on Terror. Eric, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, your book is a fascinating read, and we do want to get into it in just a bit, but we want to start by talking about the company that you're currently running, DVN Holdings. Uh, the company recently had a makeover and was renamed Frontier Services Group Limited. Can you tell us briefly about what the company's new mission is? Sure. Uh, as uh, companies are looking to invest and operate in Africa, doing um, energy development, mining, infrastructure, agriculture, uh, all those kind of uh, business lines, we are there to help make uh, their projects more reliable, um, lower cost, uh, much more predictable. So we're going to help them get into the market, help them um, with their camps, their survey operations, get their projects up and running, and then make sure once they are operating, helps make sure their product consistently can get to market and we minimize the disruptions that can sometimes come with Africa. So this is uh, aviation, logistics, uh, and the like. Sure. As I've said before, we'll start on the aviation side because really I think if you're going to operate in Africa credibly across the continent, you have to be able to do it with airplanes first just because the distances are so vast. Okay. In your previous life, you were the founder and former CEO and chairman of a company called Blackwater, which was a provider of global security and logistics uh, solutions. In other words, the company was a private military contractor that worked for the U.S. government and others, including in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, it's not every day that someone with your background ends up running a publicly traded company in Hong Kong. Uh, How did you go from being intimately involved with America's global war on terror to becoming the chairman of DVN Holdings? Well, I uh, I sold all the Blackwater back in 2010. Um, I moved um, to the Middle East. I lived in Abu Dhabi for a number of years. I started a private equity fund that uh, we did some direct investing into energy mining, agriculture type activities, and I realized. Uh, as we were looking for our own logistic support to do some of these projects, uh, how scarce and how unreliable uh, many of the vendors were, and I particularly arrived at the uh, at the need for an aviation business when I was almost killed in a near miss um, up in uh, Burkina Faso in an aircraft that was not very well maintained, not the right one for the mission, and uh, that was a a sobering moment. And so, as I was traveling around. Um, Asia trying to raise money for a fund. 
Uh, a lot of the, the, the big customers, the big investors, they said, that's great if you want to be a money manager, but what we really need you is help us sort out our logistics. Well, so we're we're very best. we're very glad that you were not killed, and um, uh, <laughs> uh, well, we are speaking to you in Africa, and I know it's quite late there. And thanks very much for joining us. And, and I guess this accounts for a little bit of the bad connection that we have. In many ways, DVN's fo- focus in Africa reflects. China's outsized presence in Africa uh, last year, Sino-African trade was 210 billion, which is a gigantic increase from just 10 billion in 2000. Now, about five years ago in 2009, China overtook the U.S. as Africa's largest trading partner. Do you think the United States is losing out to Africa? I mean, losing in Africa to China? Well, you know. Come back to the to why we located the company in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the um, the capital, really the center for capital flows uh, for all of Asia, and Asia has that investment need and the appetite the the the, uh, the appetite for the risk to invest in Africa. And so it's not so much a race between China and the United States. Look, um, China is developing rapidly. And every time they build a road, build a bridge, build a car, build a house, that means more steel, more copper, more aluminum, all those essential um, elements, those commodities, and they need to get those from Africa. And so they're, they're on a mission uh, to obtain assured supply. When, I, when you say you know, there is um, more appetite to invest in Africa, in Asia, which parts of Asia specifically are you talking about? Well, certainly China, certainly Korea. Japan, you're seeing more of. India, you see more and more uh, showing up around Africa. But China certainly is the um, is the biggest investor right now, uh, and with the economy growing the way it is. You know, a few years ago, I, I took my kids on a bike trip uh, across much much of China, and you could really see the development, the construction, the rate of growth is significant. And as people go from one, you know, from a rural farming existence to a city dweller that, that wants a house and a car. And all the things that we in the West often take for granted, uh, those commodities have to come from somewhere. And so uh, I understand why China has the need for it, and we're going to help um, Chinese companies or Western companies or whoever's legitimately operating in Africa, help them make their logistics process smoother. And really, Africa benefits greatly doing that as well because they benefit from the roads, from the reliable power supplies, from the better transport logistics the lower transaction costs, all the good things that come from uh, uh, from good capitalism. Sure. We are speaking with Eric Prince, chairman of DVN Holdings Limited, stock number 500 on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Okay. Now, the story of your previous company, Blackwater, is a controversial one, perhaps not in Asia, but certainly in the U.S., and many of our listeners in Hong Kong probably have no idea how much business Blackwater did with the U.S. government in the war on terror. Um, could you tell us a bit about the work that Blackwater did in the war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan? Sure. You know, I started Blackwater uh, right after getting out of the SEAL teams. Um, and the, I started the Navy the SEALs. Business, uh, the U.S. Navy SEALs. And, you know, U.S. Special Operations Forces have been using privately owned facilities really since the 1970s, small ones for their specialty tactics and firearms training. And no one had done it on an industrial scale. And so I was able to do that. 
and we built it, um, and we ended up training um, many of the special operations forces, and then after tragedies like the Columbine High School shooting in the United States, and then the USS Cole was a Navy ship blown up by terrorists, and then, of course, after 9-11, the U.S. government needs to operate overseas more, uh, so special units need training. Uh, the government needs security forces. They need uh, aircraft. They need logistics support, construction. So we grew into all those roles, uh, operating without any uh, government support in a lot of those missions, uh, and we operated very effectively. We did more than 100,000 protective missions for all the diplomats in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. So essentially, you guys. So essentially, you guys provided security detail for a number of the for lots of diplomats, U.S. diplomats in in Iraq and Afghanistan, plus some very high profile people um, such as Paul, Paul Bremer. Um, who was there? Yeah, and even including uh, then Senator Obama or <laughs> President George Bush when he visited, and, uh, and vice, know. and I believe it also included Vice President Biden. Am I right? And we actually, we at one point we rescued uh, uh, Biden, Hagel, and Kerry off the side of a mountain in Afghanistan after the helicopter was forced down. Okay, you used to say that your goal for Blackwater was to do for the U.S. Defense Department what FedEx did for the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, these days, Washington is quite concerned about China's rapid military buildup, but China likes to point out that the U.S. spends more on defense than the next 10 countries combined. Uh, what did you think you could do for the U.S. Department that it could not do with all that money sloshing around? Uh, I'm a big believer in competition. Um, and innovation, and you know, certainly the FedEx placed service, but they certainly made the postal service run a little bit better, smarter, and faster, and make those dollars go uh, a little bit farther. The U.S. In, U.S. indeed spends a lot of money on defense, probably too much, uh, almost to the point of being counterproductive. Uh, and so, there's less innovation uh, than there needs to be in the U.S. defense space. So that was. That was the goal with Blackwater in the old days. I've really taken those, those, uh, I guess, the talents, the skill sets, um, and turned them into how do we operate in difficult places with no outside help on a firm fixed budget. You now run a company based in Hong Kong, a city that's uh, been consistently ranked by independent surveys as the freest economy in the world. There's plenty of efficiency in Hong Kong. Um, do you see a difference in how business is done he- here versus in Washington? Well... Um, I, I appreciate that uh, Hong Kong companies will make a decision and move out smartly, um, um, and they focus on uh, on getting the job done. Um, not as many committees, I guess, in Hong Kong as boardrooms, uh, and a lot more innovation and boldness. I think to be successful in business, you have to be willing to take chances um, and sometimes to fail. So I guess... Um, Big plotting bureaucracies in any country don't serve the people very well, and uh, that's one of the great things about Hong Kong. And I'm I'm um, I'm very sad that America has declined in its in, on the index of economic freedom. Uh, uh, Hong Kong and many parts of the rest of the world have uh, have surpassed it. It's uh, it's it's not a good thing uh, for the American economy and really for the world because the U.S. is a can be a great economic leader for the world, but not if it's um, burdening itself with more bureaucracy 
um, and more government intervention. Okay. We've been speaking with Mr. Eric Prince, chairman of Frontier Services Group Limited, uh, formerly known as DVN Holdings, and he is also the author of Civilian Warriors. Eric, thank you again for joining us during this late hour in Africa. No problem. Uh, one other thing, the book Civilian Warriors is being published in Mandarin, and, and it should be out by uh, the end of summer. All right. Uh, this year. So this is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.